All right, I'm going to be in 2 Samuel, so you want to turn to that, please? And it's the 12th chapter, probably one of the most famous passages of Scripture uh, in the Old Testament, uh, if not very, very close to it. Uh, it all depends on where, what you're looking for, I suppose. I know there's a lot of Psalms that are very dear to our hearts. But uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, I want to begin with verse 13. And uh, so this, 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 this morning we're going to talk about this episode in David's life. It's a tough one. Usually I call on Andy to preach these tough ones. But, uh, but here it is, and here I am, and here you are. So we're going we're gonna to do it together. So I'm going to ask you to stand together for the reading of God's Word. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted, he went into his house, he spent nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied, he's dead. And then David got up from the ground after he had washed. He put on lotion, changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. Then he went down to his own house and at his request they served him food and he ate. His servants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and you wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and you eat. And he answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. And I thought, who knows? Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. And then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent a word through Nathan, the prophet, to name him Jedidiah. Lord, add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. So, Father, use this passage to speak to us in this very human condition and the things that we go through, uh, that we would grow, that we would learn, that we would glorify and seek your face. And this is our heart in Christ's name we pray. Amen. No thoughtful Christian can read this, really, without raising all kinds of questions in their hearts and lives. We deal with it not because it's a chapter in the Bible, but because it's a slice of life. It's real life. 
And one of the greatest questions that you'll have if, is, as a believer in the Lord is, God, you say I'm forgiven, I belong to you, then why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this? And at some level, you're going to ask that question. At some level, all of you will ask that question. It's in verses 13 and 14, if you're going to follow in the scripture here, through Nathan, God says, David, you're forgiven. I take away your sins, but your child is going to die. Now, that's what's called in logic a non sequitur. Does not compute. It does not compute. You're forgiven, but you're going to suffer. And we say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> what's that all about? Wait a minute. You know. Now, if you don't deal with it here in Scripture, how are you going to deal with it in life? when it comes to you, because it will come to you, these things. Because you're going to deal with suffering. Suffering is like being in a very dark room. The Bible will give you enough light, not to answer all your questions, but it'll give you enough light so you don't fall on your, and break your teeth. It'll give you some direction to go. This story precedes a very famous story. David the king fell in love with Bathsheba. We know the story wife of one of his best friends, David has an affair with her, she gets pregnant, David arranges for that guy, her husband, to get killed on the battlefield, he marries Bathsheba, and David has a child born from Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet comes, and he looks at David, and he says, David, one of the great texts in the Bible, he says, King David, there was a rich man who had a lot of sheep. There was another guy who had one sheep, very poor individual, and the rich man stole the lamb from the poor man, he killed it and he ate it, what should we do with that man? And David said, that man should be drawn and quartered. String him up. String him up. And then what does Nathan say? You're the man, David. What you've done. You're the guy. You're the guy. So David is convicted and he says, I've sinned against the Lord. And God says, I'm going to strike your son. And his little boy got fatally ill and died. And we're told that when David went through the grief process in verse 16, if you want to look at it, he got on the floor. They couldn't get him up off the floor, the scripture says. I mean, is that grieving so much? I was reading about a woman who had lost her only child, her daughter, was on a TWA flight that went down. And when they told her what had happened, she said, if I had a gun, I would have shot myself but all I could do was cry, scream, crawl along the floor of my motel. Same with David. I mean, that's what we're reading here. All he could do was cry, scream, and crawl on the floor. He was in the dirt. In fact, if you want to see David's prayer journal about this event, go to Psalms 51. It's all about this. He's writing about it in Psalms 51. And there he says to the Lord, the, 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 the bones that you've, you've broken my bones... You know, And he talks about the fact that at the time like this, you can't get up. You're just in grief. All I could do, he said, is cry and scream and crawl along the floor. Spiritually speaking, David said, it's like my bones are dust. I've been broken. I've been broken. They're crushed. I couldn't stand on my feet. I didn't want to get up. And any parent's that goes through this is going to feel the same way. 
What's fascinating is, in this article that she was writing, is that she says seven and a half years later that she's never gotten up. She's never gotten up. It's painful. It's a powerful article that speaks of her loss and how it affected her life. She talks about what she calls the psychobabble of grief. The scam, she calls it, that of, of, she hated when the grief counselors would come that the insurance company sent to her and they kept sending and she said how they, they would say, you know, you have, you have the memories, you, you can face the world with hope, look for the rainbows and, and you have to be strong and you have to get back into life. And she said it was so shallow, it was so superficial, she hated it. And sometimes she had, she had her husband throw him out. And in the end, she's still on the floor. Still living a life of hell is what she said. She says, no good has come of it. I can hardly face each day. My grief has never, ever gotten better. And yet, when we look at this passage, in the 1220 there, it says, David got up off the floor. David got up off the floor. All we know is that when he was down there, he was desperate, he was grieving, but when he got up, he was in complete control. I mean, as we read that, he's in complete control of what's going on in his life. Now, I don't understand everything, but David got something down there when he was on the floor. Something happened to him that this lady didn't get. And in verse 20, it says, he got something because he got up and he worshiped. He worshiped God. My experience in dealing with people in extreme grief is they're too hurt, they're too angry to worship. And they have difficulty here with worship. But David got up from the floor with tremendous amount of self-control and peace, and he worshiped. And more than that, I can't believe this when I read it, it says, verse 24, he comforted his wife. doesn't say he tried to comfort her. It says he comforted his wife. What did he get down there? That's what I want to know. What did he get down there that could give him this strength to, to not only take care of himself, but to heal her? What healed him? And from the text and from Psalm 51, I, I would suggest to you this morning three things. And if you know these things, you're going to get up. You're going to get up. And I don't care how great a Christian you think you are. Life hits you full force. And, 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 and even Jesus, when Jesus saw Lazarus, he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, right? When he, when he came, he knew what was going to happen. When Jesus saw Lazarus dead, and when he saw the people wailing and mourning and grief, and it doesn't say that Jesus says, ah, look for the rainbows, right? Just, just have a little faith. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow's good. No. What happens? He wept with them. He went into their grief, and he went in with all of them. See, to, to know these things does not keep you off the floor, but they'll lift you up off the floor. They'll pick you up off the floor when you're down there. So first thing here, and this, this is easy to see but hard to accept. God says to him, what's happening to you now, it's not payback it's surgery. 
That's an important concept. It's not payback, it's surgery. Look at this very carefully or you're not going to believe what I have to say. In verses 13 and 14, Nathan the prophet says, so this is God speaking, he's a prophet of God. He says, the Lord has taken away your sin, you're not going to die. What does that mean? What does that mean? The Lord has taken away your sin, you're not going to die. Taking away sin in the Old Testament is very specific. God is saying, I don't see your sin anymore. I don't remember it anymore. David, God is saying, I am no longer treating you as a condemned man. I am no longer paying you back. I, I'm not, it's not about paybacks. I, I'm not extracting a debt from you anymore. I'm not giving you what you deserve. I've taken away your sin from my eyes. And then Nathan, Nathan in order to make this clear, says in verse 13, you're not going to die, David. Why? Why? It means that if David was treated by God as David deserved, a condemned sinner, if God was going to make David pay, he would lose his life. He would lose his kingship. He would lose his relationship with God. But most of all, most of all, and this the whole text that we look at this morning cannot be understood unless you understand this. David would have lost his mission in life. And David's mission in his life is to bear the line of the Messiah. He is to bear the line of the Messiah. So in, 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 in 2 Samuel 7 and 12 in the following, God makes this amazing statement to David. He says this, from you will come one who will save the world. To one of your descendants, to him, I will be his father. I will be his father. He will be my son. David, your house and your throne will be established forever. Think about that. <laughs> Think about what David's going through here. Basically, God said, David, through your family, through you, I'm bringing Messiah into the world. This is David's mission. And he knows this. He realizes this. I'm going to save my people. I'm going to save the world through my family. Now God says to David through Nathan, I'm not taking away your life. I'm not taking away your kingship. I'm not taking away your mission. And I'm not giving you what you deserve. It's not payback. What is it? Surgery. Surgery. Why? He says in verse 14, this is not happening to you, but because, but because. The word because there, and I thought about this as I was looking at this passage of scripture, because by doing this, you have made enemies of the Lord for them to show utter contempt for me, so the son you have is going to die. It seems like God is saying, I'm on, I'm, that, this is, I'm reading this. You dishonored me, you dishonored me, and therefore I'm going to hurt you. You sinned, I'm going to pay you back. But verse 13 says, I will not do that. I will not do that. But David, there's something wrong with your heart. Something needs to be repaired here. 
And by your contempt, you have brought contempt on me, the God Almighty. The word contempt here means to take God lightly. To take the Lord lightly. What's wrong with David? What is wrong with this guy? What is he doing here? What kind of a man would have his best friend killed and then try to justify it? What kind of a man would jeopardize his whole family, bring incredible grief to his family, and his kingship, if this got out politically? What kind of a man would do something this stupid? As ridiculous as this was, a driven, weak, needy man. A a man so needing, let's say, sexual affirmation. So needing a sense of power or whatever. He needs it so bad. This is not a free individual. This guy's in bondage. And Nathan is saying to him, you've treated God lightly. God has become a symbol to you. An intellectual, you think about an intellectual concept. You think about God. You, you, you can talk about it. You can write the Psalms about, about this. But as a functional, operational reality in your life, he's gone. He's gone. If God had been glorious in your eyes, David, when you were tempted by Bathsheba, You would have said, wow, she's beautiful, but God has crowned me with honor and glory. How can I do this? Listen, if God is a reality to you, I mean really, if God is a reality to you, there's nothing you so need that it can drive you to make these stupid, dishonest decisions in life. Who does cowardly and dishonest things? Well, all of us. All of us. Why? Because God isn't as real to us in those moments. God isn't as real to us in those moments that come into our lives. Nathan says, you treated God lightly, and now politically, Israel is on the edge. Something has to be done, David, to heal you, to bring you back. Everything, even the messianic line, is on the precipice. Something has to be done. And in my studies, I came across a book by Larry Crabb, a Christian psychologist, and the book was called Finding God. And he dedicated the book. And I was looking at I don't read the dedications very much, but I have started to do it after reading this. Here's what he said. He's, now get this. He says, To the memory of Dr. Charles Smith, a mentor who prayed for his cancer to return if it would bring him closer to God. Huh. And in his last year, he found God in God, a measure he had never known before, and then he died of cancer. Huh. If that seems ridiculous to you, with all due respect, it means you don't know what the reality of God is. You don't realize what David lost. Because if you have the reality of God and the presence of God in your life, you have everything. If you don't have the reality of God, you've got nothing. 
you've got nothing. God says, David, because you've lost this, I have to do this. But this is not payback. This is surgery. Okay? Now, what is it surgery? Here's the point. You ask the question. What is it surgery on? What's what's happening here? What's the surgery? Now, don't miss this because this this is important. You think... When, you, when we look at this, why did the kid have to die? I mean, why did he have to die? I, I don't know. I don't get it. <laughs> to be honest, I, I looked, I, I don't know. But here's the second point. Here's the second point. What does suffering do surgery on? It always does surgery, now listen to me, on your trusts, on what you trust in your life. Always. It's surgery on your trust. Let me put it this way. What is suffering? Someone says, well, suffering is pain. We're going through pain. Well, what is pain? You know, I have to go to the doctor. I hurt my shoulder. So I go to the doctor and I go to the doctor and the doctor says, Tom, terrible news. You're, you've done damage to your shoulder. You're never going to be able to use it again. And, and you're not going to be able to play golf again. And I'm going to say, I don't play golf. Right? I don't care. <laughs> I don't play golf that much. You know, right, Jeff? <laughs> so what else can I do? He says, no, everything else you can do, everything else you want to do, you know. Uh, well, this isn't suffering to me. But if I was a PGA professional, right? So suffering becomes what? Relative. Suffering is relative in our lives. Why do people get on the floor when they suffer? Because the thing that they're leaning on the most in their life has collapsed. What they're trusting in. What's first. And that thing is falling apart and it's collapsing. The only thing that makes you suffer is when something you really believe, something you trust, collapses. And here's the difference between terrible suffering and unbearable suffering. Now listen to me. When you lose things that you love... And we we have those in our life. You suffer. And when things you ultimately trust, things you worship, things that are the root of your personality, things that make you go, when they're taken away, it's intolerable. It's intolerable. 2 Thessalonians. There's an interesting passage of Scripture where Paul says, we know you're Christians because you're facing suffering with strength. With strength. How can Paul say that? It's simple. You know you believe in the true God when suffering, though it hurts you, it doesn't destroy you. Because your suffering can only destroy you if it destroys your God. Think about that. It can only destroy you if it destroys your God. Do you, see, do you see that? You see that with David here? If God is the most important thing to do, you can be destroyed. If God is no longer the reality of your life, you can, David, David is having a hard time. And he was vulnerable. He was vulnerable. Everybody in this room is vulnerable. Uh, to the degree that God is not vulnerable. I mean, he's God. 
The pearl of great price. You know, we talk about that. What's, what's the most important thing in your life? What's the most precious thing in your life? Suffering always does surgery on what you trust in, what you have faith in. That's why suffering is almost the only fast and profound way to radically change someone's personality, to change an individual, because only suffering shows you what you're made of. Suffering shows you where you're at. Where are you putting your faith? Where are you putting your strength? The Bible tells us that if you're a believer, suffering is redemptive. That's what happened to David. It's redemptive. So God comes to Abraham, you know, go back to that story. And he says, Abraham, Isaac has to die. What's that all about? Same thing. Same thing. And and he says, well, why? And Abraham was an old man. And when Isaac was born and Abraham had completely, he had completely built his life around this child. It was was what what he lived for, his child. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be a Christian counselor. Any counselor will tell you this. Any adult that makes a child their emotional center, loves that child to the moon and back, this child is what gives you all your meaning in life. You will ruin the child, and the child will ruin you. The child will ruin you. So God says, Abraham, until you love me more than you love Isaac, and that's what that story is all about. Abraham, if redemption is going to happen in the world, right? And the world is going to be saved, your son has to die. And Abraham says, okay, okay, God has to come first. And so he says, okay, Isaac needs to die. And when he says that, God says, no, he doesn't have to die. Because I see your heart. I see your heart. So what's going on with David? What's going on with Devin? I, I, I don't know. But here's my best guess. Why did David go after Bathsheba? You know? I don't think it was just sex. I don't. Uh, if you read the text, you'll see that David had never had a satisfying relationship with a woman. In his culture, he had a lot of wives. I mean, he had a lot of wives. Every one of them was a bust. <laughs> That's what I'm seeing. He finds one and suddenly there's a sexual connection, but there's also a personal connection, and she's married. So here's what David decides. Here's what David decides. David said, God, you want me to be happy, right? You want me to be happy. But there's a law of God that says I'm not allowed to commit adultery. But I'm sorry, I can't trust you, God, to be good to me, to have my best interest in mind. I'm going to have to take my life into my own hands. I know what's best for me. And he did. And now everything in his life has fallen apart. So he looks at God, and this is in Psalms 51, and he says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. When you read that, you say, well, what about the husband? What about Uriah? What about that guy? You know? But David, he's, he's not going. David is saying the sin beneath sins, the real problem here, the sin beneath the sins was character assassination of God. I'm saying, God, I don't need you. You're not that important to me. I didn't think you were that good. 
You know, I thought I knew more than you. I, I thought I knew what was best for me. I'm my own person. I didn't believe and I, and I made a mess of my life. That's the sin beneath the sins, right? If I obey God and my life is hard, that means God doesn't love me. I'm going to have to take things into my own hands, live my own life. Therefore, the dying child, you know, it's not just that the child was an idol because the child was an idol, but it's the idol of him trying to build a family and, 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 and not on God. That's what's going on here. Build a family, but not the way God says. Taking his life into his own hands, his idol was thinking that he had to run his own life, run it without God, and God did surgery on his trust. Who do you trust? And the last thing that I wanted to say. What was the scalpel? How did it happen? How did it happen? When he was on the floor... He saw that God was a God of grace. And when he gets up, verse 22 in your scriptures, maybe God, he's thinking about his son. This is before his son died. He said, maybe God in his grace will let the child live. Do you see that? See that? He says, I thought the Lord, I, I, I thought, he said, for, for this child to live would be nothing but grace. Be nothing but grace. He's not demanding justice here from God, is he? No. He's not demanding justice. He sees how everything God is doing is a matter of grace. That's the only reason he gets up saying, not saying, no, 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 no. I, I, I'm not happy with it. No. Let me worship. That's, that's the only reason. Let me worship. This is what a religion of good works does. And we sang about that. I tried my best. Now, God, you should bless me. No, no, you'll be saying, I hate you, God. You'll be bitter. I hate you. It's unjust. I tried my best. I did my best. But what's the gospel? What's the gospel? We know it. God made him sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Saved by grace, right? We're saved by grace. When you see that, when you really understand that, you don't say, I hate you, God, because you know if God gave us what we deserved, we'd all be gone. We'd all be toast. But you get up and you say, I hate it. I hate sin. I hate evil. I hate the brokenness that I see in this world. And I align myself with God against, against it. I align myself with God. How do we know God is aligned against it? Here's why. This just takes your breath away. God says to David, if redemption is going to go forward in this world, your son's going to die. Your son's going to die. But unlike any other God, 
or any other religion, our God never asks us to do anything that he hasn't asked of himself. Because God said to himself, if redemption is going to happen in this world, my son has to die. God had to voluntarily put up Jesus as a sin offering and there was no way redemption could have happened without it. No way we could be saved without the Lord Jesus Christ. God never asked anyone in the world to do a millionth of what he has asked of himself. God did not create evil. God did not create suffering. But he uses, he sends suffering into our lives. And if we're willing to reorient our trust on the things that we trust in, during these times, we'll be purified, Scripture says. It'll purify us. We will be cleansed. We will be like him. We will be like him. God so hates suffering. He came, he embraced it so he could destroy the suffering and the sin without destroying us. The ultimate reason why we can face times and difficult times, and we all do in our lives, that things come that we don't expect in our lives, is to know God said, my son had to die. Our pain is nothing compared to the pain of God and David didn't understand and what we understand today. I mean, I mean, we, we have far more resources than David had. We know far much more about suffering because we know God sent his son. You know, God put his son up there. David didn't see that, but I think, I think God came to him. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. In this passage of scripture, it's down in verse 23. I think God came to him, and I think God gave David a revelation. And, and, and this is a guess because he gets up and he says in verse 23, he will not come to me, he's talking about his son, but I will go to him. I will go to him. Furthermore, the Lord said, David, to show you that I'm a God of grace, that no matter what you've done, once you're forgiven, the past is gone, and in my grace you were made perfectly righteous, I'm going to bring the Messiah. Listen to this. Think, 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 think. I'm going to bring Messiah not through any of your other wives, but through Bathsheba. My God. Bathsheba. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. This is the most astonishing thing. Why do that? Why do that? Why would God choose to bring the Messiah through Bathsheba? He says, through Bathsheba you will have a son and he will be the one. And David gets up and he runs to Bathsheba and he says, we're going to have another baby boy and this is the one. The other one wasn't the one, but this is the one. And he names him Solomon. Solomon. Do you know what Solomon means? Shalom. Peace. David's at peace. Peace. It was David's way of saying, I'm at peace with God. But God said something else here, right? The little last verse we read. God goes a step further. God's, there's, there, there's one more than that, God said. He says, 
His name's not just Solomon. His name is Jedediah. And what does Jedediah mean? I delight in him. And God is saying, that's my beloved. You're my beloved. I'm a God of grace. I'm a God of grace. There's no more powerful place in the Bible that talks about it than here. As disturbing as it is, as difficult as it is, we all have pain. We all have got things in our lives that come, that come against us that we can throw up our hands. Take these things into your life. What Scripture is saying here, and you'll be able to get up off the floor. You will get off the floor and you'll praise God. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father. Thank you for giving us strong and powerful words. Thank you for a severe mercy that you bring and amazing grace. And help us as your people to say, I'm yours and I'm yours alone. I want your honor. I want your glory in my life. I, I take my hand. I don't want to run my life, Lord. I want, I want you. I, I trust in you and what you say in your word. And help us to, to know we need to say that. We need to say that and help us to understand. And we give you praise and we give you glory in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.